Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey y'all, it's Justin Richmond. Today on the show, we're talking to John Batiste, someone who I absolutely love for bringing jazz back to late night. From the days of Doc Severinsen on Carson to Branford Marsalis on Leno, late night was one of the last places keeping jazz alive in households across the country. Of course, it would be John Batiste to bring that tradition back. Batiste is an overachiever. As a kid, he was a state champion basketball player and a chess champion. And then when he turned his attention to music at age 14 after picking up drums, then switching to piano, he started a band with fellow New Orleans musician Trombone Shorty. And that still wasn't enough. He had to then go to Juilliard. Today, Batiste is the band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and an Oscar-winning composer for the Pixar animated movie Soul. He also received the highest number of Grammy nominations this year with 11, including Album of the Year for his most recent release, we are. Let's listen to a bit of the song Cry from that album, which expertly blends a number of genres. John considers We Are his best work yet. As you can tell from that clip, it's an accessible mix of jazz, blues, soul, and hip-hop. Batiste talks with Bruce Headlam today about what it was like coming up in legendary NOLA barrooms. He also talks about setting up a piano in the midst of Brooklyn protests after George Floyd's murder. And he talks about what it meant to have Obama call him personally after hearing his new album. This is Broken Record. 
Atlanta Notes for the Digital Age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with John Batiste. Let's start by talking about your album, which came out last year and it's been nominated for a million Grammys. You're going to be one of those guys at the end of your career who has like 170 Grammys, right? My goodness. Well, you know, I make music and I just keep my head down and work on the craft. And this is incredible because think about the process this year for the Grammys, how transparent it's become. And this year they're really pushing for it to be peer voted without so many committees and to have everybody who's an expert in their field nominate me in their field, you know, classical folk. It, I don't know what to say. It's, it's just an honor beyond words. And I'm, I'm very humbled by the nominations. You know, one thing about this album, like listening to it with your other albums, is this is such a rhythmic album. Did you write it differently? Were you writing it at the piano? Or did you start with rhythm for some of these songs? Well, I think that I'm just getting more and more in tune with my artistry. And I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm getting better. I don't know why there's this mentality that artists, as they get older, you know, they peak and then at some point they can't find the rhythm again. And maybe that would be true for me, but I feel like this album is my first album. It's almost as if I'm a late bloomer in that way. I started music and recording when I was 16, 17, but you know, this feels like my first album in the sense of me getting my game in my package together. You did start as a drummer, is that right? Yeah, I started as a drummer. I dabbled on piano, but I was not a pianist by definition. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of pianists I've talked to really started out as drummers. They say it had a big effect on their piano playing. Did being a drummer affect how you approach the piano? Everything is everything. You get a sense of connectivity between all types of activities that you do, especially at that age. You know, I'm thinking about when I was 11. I don't think there's anything that directly impacted the next thing, but it all affected everything. (laughs) I didn't actively become a musician or music listener until I was about 15 or 16. Everything before that point was acquired through osmosis. I had so many different experiences from my dad being a musician Mm-hmm. And my uncle's playing in the blues and chitlin circuit of the Southeast United States and then playing, you know, folks like Jackie Wilson, Isaac Hayes, King Floyd, Lloyd Price, blues singers, folk singers, soul singers of the black idiom of that mm-hmm. time. Then you have my my sister who's listening to Cash Money Records and the Hot Boys and Alanis Morissette on cassette tape. My cousins who were advanced music producers at this time, producing, making beats rapping. You know, I was studying classical piano lessons. My mom, she insisted that I take classical music. She was not a musician, but a very erudite person. She had two degrees. She was an environmentalist before it was in vogue. She would tell me to read books and and things that I didn't have any real connection to in my environment, but it just kind of got me to thinking about a lot of things. And then I played sports, played basketball competitively until I was 14, 15 won a national AAU championship and things like that, chess championships. I was a gamer and a comic book kid more than a music fan. And then I also went to jazz camps because I'm in New Orleans and I'm studying with these guys who are like village elders. You're talking about Ellis Marsalis, 
Alvin Batiste, my late great mentor and the one who actually helped me to find my voice as a jazz musician when I was 15, 16. But this is when I was like 11 or 12 and I didn't understand a word he was saying. And I was just doing it because it was another one of the many activities and things that I was doing. So I didn't really buy my first record or listen to music or say that this influenced that as a musician until I was about 15. Really? I was ambivalent to it. It was just around me before that age. I wasn't really an active musician or considered myself a musician until I was 15. So it's hard for me to say that my drumming was an impactful thing on my piano playing because it was all just a part of this really rich tapestry of my upbringing that I was fortunate enough to be born into without even my knowledge of it being something that is so culturally rich or diverse. I just was in it. And I actually was more ambivalent to being a musician than anything because everybody was a musician on my father's side of the family. So it was just like, well, I do this, but I don't want to do this for a living. I mean, it's the family business. You want to escape. Yeah. It's like what, you know, coupled with the fact that I had this feeling that I wanted to leave New Orleans to explore the world and see the world because I just had so many ideas about what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And at a certain point, as beautiful as home is, and it'll always be home for me, I felt like I needed to make a home for myself somewhere else. And one of your songs is about that, isn't it? On the new album, is it Boyhood? About your Is that about your father telling you to what it's going to be like in New York City? You're thinking of Boyhood and Tell the Truth. Yeah. Both songs are about this idea of growing up, coming out of this age of being a boy and a, and a child and a, and a son of your parents to being a man, being your own man and understanding. You know, he says, tell it like it is. Love how you live. And when you're doing what you do, tell the truth. A lot of people tell you, have fun, do your best, but tell the truth. Tell the truth is different to do your best, have fun, give it your all. Tell the truth says something very specific about you going into a den of vipers. You're going into a place where there's a lot of posturing and dishonesty and lacks authenticity. So what's going to make you successful? What's your definition of success, at least that he was trying to impart to me? And what that song is about is, a lot of people may not see your truth as successful or as the way or mm. as the thing that is what you should be pursuing. But tell it like it is. Love how you live. And when you're doing what you do, tell the truth. So tell the truth is, is really about that. You know, those lyrics are all true. Listening to that song, my daddy had a small house up on the east side, East Louisiana State Drive, small house up on the east side with a magnolia tree in the front yard. You know, this is where I grew up. He grew up in the times were hard and gritty. You know, he tell me stories about growing up on tour, people coming into the club, pulling out a rifle, and the band having to jump behind stacks of amplifiers, or, or driving, packing the van, you know, touring and driving, being the tour manager, the band performing, and also the roadie, all in one. Yeah. You know, this is the kind of stuff that um, that song is about. Wow. Do you think you've been able to do that your whole career? Has there ever been a time you thought, eh, I'm not quite doing it. I'm not quite telling the truth here. No, I've always told the truth. That's whether it's to my immediate career advancement or detriment. And I've always told the truth. I've happened to get to a point now where telling the truth has allowed me to win an Oscar and be nominated for all these Grammys and all these things. But I know I don't take it for granted. I'm very humbled by the fact that 
me being who I am and being recognized in this way is allowing me to have success. And I'm on TV and I'm playing A Night in Tunisia on TV. I'm playing jazz and, and these types of music you never hear on TV. At least when I was growing up, I didn't hear it. And now I'm able to be a household name in a sense, doing something that's so true to me. And one day that's not going to work. I'm sure. Sure, the, the tables will turn and there will be a, a moment where me doing this thing and doing my thing is not necessarily going to be the thing that is going to advance me the most. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better at telling the truth of who I am and making it something that most people can understand. It's accessible. It's translatable. And that's the goal, right? It's not about popularity. It's about tapping into something in the soul of humankind that is universal and makes people feel like they're not alone. So if I can do that, boom, it's a win. When I was listening to this album, you do a lot of things with your voice. You got a lot of different sounds. And that used to be more common in, I'm thinking, more pop and soul singers. Like Stevie Wonder, when they talk about his voice, he's got like three or four voices. Paul McCartney's another one who would like, he'd growl sometimes. He would do different things. Tell me how you, how you approach singing. It's about the message of the song. It's about serving the message of the song. And that means that you have something that you can say honestly. The voice doesn't lie. The voice is, is so pure and we're so in tune with hearing people's voices from the time that we're born. Musicians, non-musicians, music lovers, non-music lovers. We just have this radar for truth in the voice for emotion being transmitted through the voice. And if someone knows that you're not bought in or you're telling something that isn't really to your core a truth for you, uh-uh, it's not going to stay connected. But for me, the easiest way to do that is to just be telling the truth all the time or to say something that you really mean all the time. And if I can't get to that, something needs to be adjusted with the music. Something needs to be adjusted with the lyric. Something needs to be adjusted with the key. Something needs to be adjusted somewhere because mm -hmm. I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting to that space with it. Were there songs on this album that you struggled with to find the right voice for? Oh, absolutely. All of them, I wouldn't say struggle with, but there were a process for some of them that didn't come as natural. Like Freedom came natural. That's the first take that you hear on the record for Freedom. Is that right? Yeah. Sung that straight down. That was just like, I don't know. That was one of those ones. I Need You was like that, too. Not the first take, but like in the first three takes. I typically only want to do six takes at the most. Three is really my sweet spot. I don't like doing more than six takes. I feel like something misses. I'll have to labor over it in my mind for months. Adulthood was like that. Adulthood was the last one I finished because of it was such a personal song for me, but it was covert at the same time you know it's coy personal but coy and just finding that tone and the spacing of it and the music already said so much and then I'm also going in that song from singing in my falsetto to rapping to go from these two vocal approaches and have it be connected in a way that feels organic and inevitable it just took a lot of thought and thinking through I love the way that that came out did you actually, did you sing and rap on the, in the same take? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's not always the case. You know, uh, I think about 
production quality more than I think about trying to preserve a tape, unless it's the live performance, live band type of album. I don't typically try to perform the take unless that's what's best for the take. Like Boyhood, you mentioned Boyhood earlier. Boyhood, the production style for that is not as a performance. It's it's more about this is a produced rap record, a impressionistic rap record. Whereas a song like Cry, that's a performance. That's on stage with the guitar and we just sing that down with the band. I remember we we played that one in the band. Band was playing. Steve Jordan was on the drums. Incredible Steve Jordan playing. And he was doing his thing. And he started to scream. He said, oh, he started to scream when he found the, the right pocket. He was like, this is going to be the tape. You got it. This, 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 this is it. You got to record. You got to record. You know, we record everything. And he's like, you got to record. This is going to be the tape. And everybody says that. But when he says it, I know it's true. He's got a gift for that. So Steve was locked in and everybody just locked in at the same time. And when it's like that, you just got to hit it. You got to hit. You got to make it make it happen, baby. Come on, sing it. Sing it. (laughs) Was that great guitar solo on the same take, too? Yeah, that's Robert Randolph. Robert Randolph is incredible. Sacred pedal steel musician obviously of, of, of world renowned people who, who know about his music know that he is one of the kings of that style. He just, he knows how to do what he's doing. So you just let him have it. It's really more about finding the pocket, the space where I wanted to put it. Uh, tell me about writing that song. Cause it seems one of the most plaintive and most kind of emotionally open songs on the record. That that right there. That. Ooh. I felt that in, in my soul. I felt that piano riff. Bodoweene. I felt that. And I didn't know what I wanted to say, but I felt that one day. I sat and I, I played that and I, I put it on loop and I just listened to it and we listened to it. And I called my friend Steve McEwen and then he came over and we'd listen to it. And I was like, I wanna say something with this. And I'm just trying to find the words and I just started singing, which you know sometimes ends up being a song, even if it starts out as just mumbles or doesn't. Uh, just turn into what I really want to say is in there somewhere. And I just started crying, crying, crying. I just say, I just want to say, I just feel like crying, crying, crying. Yeah. You know, I started singing. I said, I want to cry. But then he's like, that's, that's what you want to say. It, it, it came out the chorus, at least that kind of, And then when when that was there, that was clear. And this, when both of those things came together, the song just came out. We just wrote it that day. But it was, I had to call Steve. Sometimes you got to call a friend to kind of put the mirror up to yourself. And, you know, (laughs) this is is what you're saying. Can you see it more clearly now? It's like, okay, I got you. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from John Batiste. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Bruce Hedlum's conversation with John Batiste. So you said you didn't take being a musician seriously until you were around 15 and started thinking of yourself as one. But then you put your first album out when you were 17. What flipped for you? What changed? I got to give a lot of credit to seeing my peers who were doing it and also having mentorship from people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. So I'm thinking about peers of mine, like Sullivan Fortner, who wasn't a professional musician at the time, but I remember him playing the organ in church. I saw a clip of him as this whiz kid on public access television. He was playing the organ in the church at four years old, and he was the choir director. Incredible musician. We ended up going to school together. We practiced together for hours and hours at a time. You know, just seeing him, somebody who was, at the level where people were telling me I'm at this level. And then I see this kid who's my age and then, oh wow, or seeing somebody like Troy Andrews, trombone shorty, who was out there touring when he was four years old. And then he came to me at, on the courtyard in high school. I was 14 at the time and he says, let's start a band together, you and I. And uh, we started playing at the Maple Leaf Bar, the historic bar on Oak Street. He's like 15 or 16, I'm 14. And we're playing in this, this club every week this new orleans so it's it's not an abnormal thing but you know you got this band led by these two 14 year olds in a barroom on wednesday nights after school 
And just seeing him do that and recording his first album as a leader and me helping him kind of put that together and us being these brothers at this time where, you know, we're, we're, we're both trying to put this show together and lead this band, which by the way, is the band that he still leads today, Orleans Avenue. That was the band that we started in high school before I went to Juilliard. So seeing that and experiencing that and saying, you know, this is really a special thing. This isn't just a part of something I love to do with my dad at home. And this isn't just those classical piano lessons that I'm using my ears to act like I'm sight reading Bach, but I'm really just playing it by ear because I didn't know I had perfect pitch. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's beyond just this activity or this thing that I do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this ability to reach people and have a voice and have a real impact in the community and in the world. So something about the epicness of it struck me at that time, seeing those guys who were my age doing things that I thought were really cool. And then having an Alvin Baptiste in my life who was a mentor like no other, who would tell me things about his time hanging with John Coltrane or his time talking to Ornette Coleman about the meaning of life and music being an allegory, a tonal allegory for life and how that implies free jazz and avant-garde music, which he played. And it was completely alienating to most of the audience, but he was so passionate about it. And he would just share these records with me and, and make me do things musically that I was uncomfortable with to the point that I would grow so dramatically over the course of weeks of just being around him that by the time I was 17, I had reached this point where I had felt there was something worth documenting. I really didn't know how to produce an album. So my father helped me, but I knew I wanted to do it. And he kind of showed me. And that was really my first production. When I was 16, I started writing the music for it, putting the bands together, doing dates around New Orleans on Frenchman Street, playing with all these older musicians who I admired, really calling them for the first time, nervous on the phone, saying, will you come and play in my band? <laughs> and, and then playing the gig and showing them my music and they're playing. They're like, oh, this is great stuff. And then I'm playing Donald Harrison Jr., who's another one of my mentors and teachers, playing on the album and really, you know, just saying like, yeah, I believe in this. I see what you're doing. Alvin Baptiste, I see what you're doing. This is really important. This is the stuff. This is the stuff, man. You You have it. Do it. Okay. I'm interested. What did he push you to do on the piano that you said you weren't comfortable doing? It's funny. It wasn't the piano. It was the clarinet. My last oh, really? year of high school. Yep. 16 years old. He was a great clarinetist, incredible avant-garde, jazz, any style of music, clarinetist. He could do it. He was an incredible teacher, philosopher. One day he just said, this year you're going to play the clarinet. And the entire year he studied one-on-one -on -one with me, teaching me the clarinet. Um, and this is not the saxophone. This is not <laughs> the instrument that, you know, you consider when you're a 16-year-old high school to be the instrument that you want to study. But he's obviously one of your heroes, so I did it. And it was one of the most important things I ever did because he was trying to show me that music and your ability, your talent, the innate thing that you have within you can be applied to anything. It doesn't have to just fit the thing that you know you're capable of doing today. And that's why I don't believe in limitations of genre or limitations of creativity in any way. If you're good at this thing, then you can apply that same spark to something else if you figure out the code of how you can break into that 
space into that world of creativity in this arena. So it was an incredible lesson um, because it wasn't about me becoming the greatest clarinet player in the world. I still play on my records. I played on We Are. I played 12 instruments on We Are. I wouldn't have played so many instruments on We Are had I thought of myself as just a pianist, just a jazz musician, just this guy from New Orleans. If I limit myself in that way, I won't make a We Are. I won't be able to be what it is that I am in the world today. So you got to break the limitations in your mind. And that was an incredible way that he kind of planted that seed. That's interesting because when I, when I was listening many, many times to the record, it occurred to me this is an album actually about music. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's made of music, but there are so many references to music. They, you talk about your alto sax when you're a kid. You mention Obama singing Amazing Grace in one of the songs. Yes, yes. I remember you had a quote once that you said the world mostly sees music as entertainment, but it's much more than that. So did your ideas about music change while you made this record? Well, I've had these ideas about music and just really the public is coming to the consciousness about these ideas I call social music. In fact, the album that I put out in 2013 is called Social Music. And that was kind of when those ideas really became very clearly codified in my mind and I could articulate them and I could speak about them. Um, this was like 2012, 2013. And around that time, the name of my band that I was touring with and now is the house band on, on the, the, the Late Show was Stephen Colbert, the Stay Human band. Stay Human, that's when the band name changed to Stay Human. I just had a very clear philosophical awakening about what my understanding of music was at this time when I was coming down from Juilliard, playing in the subways, playing in the streets of New York City, and just really kind of figuring out social music. What does that mean in the 21st century? What are these proto forms of music before entertainment? How are they connected to globalization and the connectivity of culture now and the internet in a way that we've all become so enmeshed with each other? and have always been, but it's just been more emboldened by technological advancement. How do I represent that as a musician? Social music. So this is a a 10 year plus concept. It's just now I've been able to really make the album that can reach the people and connect that concept to the uh, greater public. But social music and we are, you know, it's almost like we are is the same conceptual definition as what social music was except it's evolved and gotten better. As you're talking, it makes sense to me. And you said, you know, you don't want to be bound by being just a New Orleans musician. But that city is one of the few places left where music is played in a lot of different social environments. That's right. For most people now, I guess other than the national anthem, there's not too many social occasions for music or people go to clubs to dance or whatever. And you've always tried to do that. You did that with My New York. Mm -hmm. You played on subways. And when you tell people, oh, we did an album on the subway, they think, oh, you got a subway car and you mic'd it up. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) There are people there playing. And then you also, you were in my neighborhood in Brooklyn during the George Floyd protests. And you kind of brought music to those protests So you seem very interested in putting music in different social environments. Tell me first, what was it like when you started playing at the George Floyd protests in Brooklyn? What was that like for you? How did that feel? 
electric, historic, a reckoning. It felt as if there was a collective consciousness that was focused on the same thing in a rare moment, in a tragic moment, but still very poignant to see all of these voices rise up to speak to the same thing. In contrast to the division that we were seeing and still seeing in the political sphere, there was a unity that I hadn't seen or felt. And there was also a toxicity to what I was seeing on news media and the presentation of of these moments, even across the world, there were so many moments of protest. It felt unified globally. At the same time, it was this, this synchronicity that I felt it needed an injection of hope that I think about music being the real universal force of that. I was just seeing people say they're destroying things, police are battling with citizens and all of this violence and, and all of this rage. And I just felt that it was such a beautiful moment of synchronicity that if someone with a voice, with a platform, were to rise up and to represent the universality and the beauty of this moment through a musical expression, that would be very important. That's important to see from talking to people before he passed away, like Congressman John Lewis and the way he would express the feeling of when they were on the bus or in the sit-ins and they would break out into song in the midst of this pandemonium and incredible duress of spirit being crushed. They would break out in the song and it would be this incredible moment of healing and a balm for everyone who was there and also a reckoning of truth to show you these are human beings. I didn't even have to think. It was just, oh, this is what social music is about. This is what I am saying I represent for all these years and what I believe and I feel to my core is the purpose of music in society in moments like this. I literally put on my coat and went out the door and called my band and called musicians. And because I'm blessed to have a platform and to be on television, all these things that I've been blessed with in my career, it was picked up in so many ways by many people and people saw it and it it really impacted a lot of people. But it's not about me. That's just what the music is. That's the truth of the music. It also has a galvanizing quality that can connect people and ideas and can take emotion and transmutate emotion to things that we don't even know. But Congressman John Lewis would always talk about that kind of solution-based approach to dealing with the rest of our times and the inner turmoil that comes with that, that heaviness that we deal with. You're reminding me that I was thinking back to that clip of Obama that you mentioned in your album when he was singing Amazing Grace. It was literally at a point that he'd kind of run out of things to say. Or he didn't know he was a little, he was overcome. It was like quite a moment for him, I thought. Man, he listened to the album. And this is probably one of the greatest honors of my life. Him reaching out and giving me his thoughts on the album. And just telling me that this album is an important piece of American culture and music culture. So to have that reference be in the album of him singing Amazing Grace at that church, what that means, what this album is in the wake of, what it represents in the world today, what it represents for me personally as a coming of age, 33 years old, making this album. And then for him 
to reach out full circle to tell me that I sat and listened to this album. It deserves all the accolades it's receiving. This is an incredible expression of our identity and our ideals as Americans, all these things that are embedded in the album, right? It's not just music. It's an album about music, yes, but it's what is the expression of music being used for at its highest and best use throughout all time? Wow. You're talking so much about social music and music in these different you know, places with bringing people together. But you did it during the, the pandemic, right? You wrote this mainly in 2019. What was it like when you were writing some of these songs and creating some of this music? Were you imagining different environments? I know, I think the song I Need You, you said was about the, the Chitlin circuit. Did each song have a kind of social place for you in your brain? Yeah, you know that bass line. Sure. Don't, don't. You heard that song and, and you hear a history when you hear that bass line. Ding, 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 ding. That, that bass line comes with lineage. Uh, it's, it's something special about taking things and making them anew by combining them with other things that they maybe haven't met yet or haven't met in that way. And then also taking those elements of things that mean something more and more as time progresses, whether it's going into the past and finding those things or things that are born today and finding a place for those textures and those colors and those sounds and rhythms and melodies and putting them in a new context. It's endless. It's incredibly rewarding to be able to do that, even if nobody hears it. A song like I Need You, that being my first number one radio song ever. You know, I, it's shocking. I was not thinking about that when I was making that song. <laughs> I was not <laughs> thinking about that song. Not only just seeing the video, the views are, are, are mind blowing for me, it's staggering to see that. But to see folks make videos of themselves dancing, doing their mm -hmm. own dance routines to the song and sending it to me and, and posting it online, all these things like that, for what it represents, mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite video that someone has sent in? The favorite thing that I remember over the pandemic, we did these dance parties, uh, these dance gatherings where I host these things online and folks from all over the world would tune in. We'd go online. I would go on live and I would dance with people playing the song, playing other songs just for hours at a time, two, three hours dancing on Sundays and people would tune in. I would add them to the screen and we would dance together for a song. I remember there was a moment there was somebody in Brazil. Then there was somebody who was in Seattle or, or, or San Francisco. And then there was somebody who was dancing in London or something. And uh, it was just incredible. Just like the, the they were like dancing outside on, on the balcony. It was nighttime. And then the other people were dancing outside and they called. They were like, oh, he, he added us to the live. And they stopped the car <laughs> on the side of the road, jumped out. Somebody was holding the phone and they were taking turns. It's just such a beautiful expression in a moment where all we see is this kind of darkness and people are talking about isolation and we got to hold on to our humanity and not let the emotions that can overwhelm us take our humanity and strip it away. 
We'll be right back with more from John Batiste after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with John Batiste. You were talking about trying to put together, you know, that little bass line with different kinds of music. It makes me think that, you know, the New Orleans piano player that you remind me of a lot is uh, James Booker. Was he an influence on you? You know, because he was a guy who brought in classical elements and when he starts playing, you're never sure where it's going to go. And that's a bit the same with you. Well, James Booker was somebody who was an unsung genius. He was a pianist who played at the Maple Leaf where Troy and I played when we were in high school. His piano was in the corner at the Maple Leaf. His presence was around even before I realized how big an influence he would be. This Maple Leaf Bar is where he recorded some of his live albums. Spider on the Keys, which was recorded at the Maple Leaf, was an album. When I started playing at the Maple Leaf with Troy, my dad gave me this record. And Spider on the Keys, he played it for me. He's like, man, just listen to this cat. And I started listening to it, and I started kind of stealing things. You know, he had this... uh
that kind of, you know, that little, little uh, feeling to his plan. I started copying that. And all, a lot of stuff I, I would cop, just take and, and, and absorb. And then folks started telling me around the town, you know, the Nevilles are different musicians who I admired, looked up to, and, and, and uh, they knew Booker. They would be like, man, you like Lil Booker. I'm 14, 15 at the time. They were like, man, you you got you got the hands like him too. And then they were like, man, you look like Booker. <laughs> I had a few musicians over the years that seems there's a magnetism from them being uh, in the world and not being here anymore. And then me being here and there's a magnetism to their art and the things they left behind. Thelonious Monk was also like that too. When I was 19, I listened to him exclusively for almost a year. And it was just something, it was a magnetism to his music and his piano playing. There's like a handful of musicians like that where it feels like something is pulling me toward their work. Are there a lot of New Orleans pianists in that list for you? Like, are you the kind of guy that we would hear, like, do we hear any Professor Longhair in the way you play? Or do we hear like Jack Dupree or any of these kind of guys? Yeah, I think there's a, a natural bond to all of the musicians who come from the community. You don't have to study them to have that in your playing. Well, Booker, it was an added level. It was an added kindredness that whether he was from New Orleans or I was from New Orleans or not, whether he was from Omaha and I was from Japan, there's a kindredness to his approach to music that's more genetic. It's more innate. Nina Simone is another one. It's incredible what happens when I listen to them. It's almost like when I'm listening to them on the record, I can become them or it, it I can be in their, their mind. It, it's a really weird feeling that I, I don't know how to describe other than that. But yeah, Professor Longhair was he I wouldn't say he's on that list for me in terms of that feeling. But as far as influential figures, him and Louis Armstrong are probably the two most mythological figures from hometown who I knew before I even knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you every Mardi Gras, I remember vividly, it was like a lightning bolt struck me when I heard the, the Mardi Gras ad come on TV. And it was every year they would play a Mardi Gras ad for a few years when I was a kid of Big Chief. And that's a Professor Longhead standard. And this piano like this. That, when that kicked, ooh, and then when he went. Like that moment, I was like, what is that? And I wasn't even really thinking about a musician perspective for myself. I wasn't thinking of myself as a musician at the time at all. I wasn't trying to be a musician. It was just something about that that was just so communicative. It sounded like a party in, a, in Second Line in Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It sounded like so much without having any words attached to it. Just that lick, bling, bling, bling. I just knew exactly what he meant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, did, uh, what did you hear in Nina Simone's playing that grabbed you? Are, are there parts of her technique and what you do? Well, her, her approach to music, her wanting to be a classical pianist and not being able to really achieve that dream, but her synthesis of classical and blues and soul and gospel and jazz, all of these different things she's connected the dots with in her playing really connected with me and my approach naturally, just based upon how I think about music and how I play. But what really connected me most with her is her voice. When I started to really sing and hearing her voice in my voice, there would be moments where it would sound like the same person in her essence, 
watching her perform. I remember I watched some of her live performances when I was in college. I was about to do some performances in um, Central Park. I think it was maybe um, a, a Mount Morris Park. And there was some footage that's now actually been made into a, a documentary. There was a friend of mine who had these archives of tapes. I don't even know how he got them, but he showed me that performance. That just struck me. I was like, oh, wow. And her voice, her tone, and there's a relationship in her tone and the way she plays the piano and her essence that really is connected to how I feel about music. I've heard you say that your piano playing was influenced a lot by Hendrix. Is that true? Yeah. How do you translate kind of what he did to the piano? That fascinates me. If you listen to him, he was really a blues musician. If you want to put him in any genre, which is not really possible to put him in a genre, he was more of a blues musician than a rock and roller. And when I think about blues and R&B, that's really what rock and roll actually was. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, these black guys from the South created this rock and roll genre that, you know, people who are now thinking about rock and roll is not always connected to that. And Jimmy was really the most clear connector of those two eras. And it influences me because I come from these sounds that are just rooted in the, in the same stuff, rooted in the dirt, it's rooted in the blues and gospel and R&B and soul. And how do you make that into a very contemporary, modern expression through your instrument, not through the style of music you make or the type of album you make, but just through your playing? How do you express that? And one of his great quotes he was talking about, I, I don't play the guitar, I play the amplifier. Well, the amplifier was an invention. It was a technological advancement of the time. And, you know, a lot of people play loud and it's, it's brash and it's harsh on the ears and it's just to be loud. But he said he would play loud to go deeply into the souls of people. And it was just a philosophical way he looked at music and his instrument and looked at how to make it contemporary while still being rooted in all the things that he organically came from that is an influence for me in the way that I approach the piano and the way that I approach the piano in my songwriting and in my performance. I mean, I know what you mean sort of philosophically, but how do you, he says he's playing the amplifier. When you sit down at the keyboard, are you playing the action? Are you thinking of it in a different way? My playing fits in all different contexts, which is a rare thing. Finding a way to be fully the same as you always are in every context is the first step of what I've done and, and, and still continue to develop with my style. And that's something that is not as obvious as, you know, I'm playing now through an amplifier, but takes a lot of thought and ingenuity to really come up with a style that doesn't sound like you're changing hats or you're becoming another musician every time you play in another context. And, that was the first real tangible innovation. If you listen to my records, if you listen to my performances, like go listen to me playing with my late friend, uh, the incredible Mac Miller on his last television performance on The Late Show when we did his song Ladders. You know, listen to me there and then listen to me playing with Willie Nelson 
and then listen to me playing. Just it, it's a, it's a good study, you know. I always try to do this with my friends, my my fellow bandmates. <laughs> try to give them a blindfold test and ask them who's that on piano, and they always figure it out, and that gives me great joy because I've spent a lot of time to to find that sound. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. There's a lot of Curtis Mayfield on this record, I think. You know, I can hear it in To Tell the Truth and Adulthood and Show Me the Way, particularly. Were you always a fan? Well, that's interesting. I think that the combination of singing in the falsetto register and singing socially conscious music is something that connects to Curtis because he's really one of the most prominent proponents of that approach. I wasn't thinking of Curtis when I was making the album, although the comparison is the highest honor that I could ever hear because knowing what he represented in his time and being a fan of his just generally as a a fan of music, I really do take that as a high compliment. In full transparency, I wasn't trying to do that. I was more, again, trying to explore my voice and figure out what the best way to deliver the messages honestly of each song would be. Um, and, and, and I think that that's a really cool thing that it resonates with you in the space that Curtis resonates with you because in a sense, that's what I was trying to do, although not as directly. We haven't even mentioned that you won an Oscar for the soundtrack to Soul. And part of that soundtrack was you did a great cover of It's All Right, his great song with the impressions. What was that like doing that song? Man, I loved it. I was crying. I was in tears. I was in in tears because it was just such a heavy time. And every time I listened to the playback, it it really brought me tears of joy. I, I don't know why. I still don't know why. And I had the same experience, you know, my collaborator on the film, creator of the, the movie Soul and the genius behind a lot of Pixar films, Pete Doctor, he called me one day and he said he had the same experience listening to the work tape. He was crying and he didn't know why he was in tears. And I was just so moved because, and I, I didn't tell him this at the time, uh, but I revealed to you that I, I was, I had the same experience with the recording. I don't usually have that emotional connection like that to my recordings, <laughs> but it, it was something about the, you know, finishing the record during the pandemic and Curtis's song and just what he sang in the song. When you wake up early in the morning feeling sad, like so many of us do, just hum a little soul and make life your goal. And surely something's gotta come to you. Say, it's all right. That that part with those chords. This is hum a little soul. Make life your goal And surely something's gotta come to you Say it's alright You know that? What? It just, it, it hits you I, Man, you, you know I could go on and on about that song But yeah, man Now in that context, I was definitely thinking about Curtis And trying to uphold the essence of that song And the ethos of what he created but make it my own and make it match the film and all that. So it was truly a special experience finding that balance. Mm -hmm. Now, when you play these songs live, this is a more 
pop-oriented album, and it's more produced in a way than some of your other work. And I guess I'm interested in how you balance your love of jazz improvisation or improvisation in general that you came to through jazz with this idea of kind of more formal compositions. How do you think about it when you're playing these songs live? You supersede the expectations and you crush them with brilliance. (laughs) You make that sound easy. Yeah, it's not easy. I I mean, I've almost fainted uh, on stage just giving it my all. We've done shows over the last year, you know, playing Austin City Limits. We did an incredible show. We did three hours long show that was broadcast on Austin City Limits. Then we did the festival and then we did a, a lot of performances blessed to do two performances in Central Park, um, 60,000 people performing these songs, performing the songs in different parts of the world through the pandemic, somehow still making it happen. And man, every show, I'm just giving so much. I got the wardrobe changed, like in the tradition of James Brown as one of my patron saints of the the live show, live experience, Mm -hmm. where it's just a, a revival. It feels like you are connected to something greater than yourself and you're in the audience and it's not about me it's about that feeling prevailing it's just about capturing the people putting them in this space together and experiencing this this vibration that is just transcendent and if you do that they're not going to worry if you didn't do it exactly like the record i'm interested in what you learned about tapping into that frequency, into getting that concert experience. Have you learned how to do that? How do you approach that? Well, you talk about this being my first kind of very produced pop album, and it really is. I say it's my first album in many senses because my extensive history up to this point of doing completely independent albums since the album I made when I was 17. And I love that because it allowed me to have 15 years of being a live musician as a band leader, and also the time before that when I was a kid in New Orleans playing in bands. So when it comes to a live show, I feel like I have multiple degrees in how to put on a live show. (laughs) I also have a a time in my life that I'm blessed to be on TV, which is incredible with the genius of Stephen Colbert. But that's also putting it into perspective. For the last seven years, I haven't been able to tour. So when I'm ready to tour, and when I'm done with the show, I'm about to knock people's socks off. I'm about to blow their lights out. You have not seen the fullness of what it is that I'm about to bring to the stage. I I am not worried about that part at all. That's the part that I feel like is like the, that's the one-two punch. <laughs> like, that's the second punch. That's the, like, bam. I mean, listen, we are ready. I am fully, fully ready. Okay. Well, this album is, it's a great jab. So thank you so much for talking. It's been just great. Let's get it. (laughs) Thank you again. Yeah, baby. Thanks to John Batiste for talking to us about making his new album, We Are. And we hope he wins all 11 Grammys that he's up for. You can check out a playlist with all of our favorite John Batiste songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Neil Abel. 
Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription service that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by the great Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.